and thank you for tuning into the Minority Report, a podcast dedicated to highlighting minority voices. I'm your host, Gabby Ostad, and today we'll be welcoming Dr. Dilsha Dayani. Dr. Dayani is an award-winning broadcast journalist, author, educator, and feminist activist, UN consultant, social impact strategist, and an advocate for the Brown community. Dr. Dayani is also a professor at Columbia University. She is the founder of World Woman Global Council and Lead to Empower, platforms for social impact initiatives and global leadership training. She served as the co-chair for Women of Color and Media Outreach for Asian Americans in the last presidential election. Dr. Dayani has been recognized on an international level for her work. Namely, she has won several local and national accolades, including Obama's Immigrant Journey Awards in 2015 for professional excellence and outstanding mentorship. This episode will highlight the power an individual has to create change starting at a young age. Dr. Dayani, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a true pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Gabby. I feel the same way and I'm extremely delighted to see you and uh, having this podcast. So good luck in your future endeavors. Thank you. Just so everyone knows, I had the opportunity of learning from Dr. Diani this summer, and I am proud to say that she was my inspiration for this podcast. I was moved by her stories of activism, her passion for social change, and am inspired by her knowledge and depth of experiences. Dr. Diani, can you begin, please, by telling us about your upbringing and early advocacy work as a young girl in South Asia? Sure, uh, Gabby. I grew up in South Asia and those countries where I spent most of my childhood were Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. Though my later years were spent in Karachi, Pakistan. So basically I grew up in these three countries and then I could see how our cultures overlapped because before partition, this was all India, one country. However, growing up, also helped me understand what we mean by poverty, what we mean by child labor, what we mean by disadvantage. But that came very late because growing up as a child, I could see the haves and the have nots because whatever I had, the children around me did not have those even basic necessities of life. And education was a privilege. And I could see the girls roaming on the streets. And I was the same age when I would walk from school and I could see all these girls sitting on the streets and playing with stones and rocks. So I did not understand the larger picture of life, but I did understand as a child that this was not right. This was not fair because I think every child is born with that intrinsic ethics you know, what you can call it a compass, where we begin to see what is right and what's wrong. Like even a toddler would tell you, if you give the other toddler a candy and you don't give them, they will tell you and come to you and say that, why didn't they get it? So this, I think it's a built-in modality in us. And then uh, later on, I could see all this and it didn't make me happy. It always bothered me. And I think that was my first awakening 
towards human rights, what we call now and what I may have defined it later in my life. I did not know the word empowerment, women's empowerment, but I did work a lot in that direction growing up. I did not know what is social justice, but I think I could see that there was a lot of inhumane activities in the society. And that led me to believe that there must be a way out for these people. So as a young girl, I belonged to a very low middle class family. And my father worked to like two jobs to send us to the private school. So I knew what challenges my father and mother faced in order for us to get the best of education. But I also knew that in the same neighborhood where I would walk up to my apartment, I could see so many girls who did not go to school. I could see two children fighting for a stale bread. I could see that some children and the mothers were crying on the streets because their children were kidnapped. At that time, I did not know that meant human trafficking. So these were the issues and all these cries and all this, you know, sorrow that I could see firsthand as a child. And so my childhood was like, I would say was more that I would question my childhood, enjoy the simple things in life. And I was aware, I think I was getting aware of what the world looks like in reality. It's so fascinating that you had such cultural awareness as a young girl. I've heard you speak before and you mentioned the time where you helped other girls in your community and tried to get them to go to school. Could you tell me a little about that, please? Yeah, of course. I think I was 12 years old and we had maids in our home. Every, even, you know, every home had a maid who would come and wash the dishes. And this lady would come into our house and she would uh, cry all the time because she was a victim of domestic abuse. She had two daughters. And those daughters were always crying too because of the fear that they wouldn't didn't want it to go in the evening with their mother. So I could see their pain and sorrow. And this was also firsthand. So I requested the mom one day after a couple of years watching them grow that, can I help their daughter? And uh, she said, yes, uh, but how will you do that? I was 12 years old, 12 and 13. And we had summer vacation. And I said, during the summer vacation, I could help these girls, you know, come to our home and I'll bring the books and I will tutor them. And she was very fascinated. The girls were jumping and they wanted to go to school, but they could not. So I helped them learn the basics and I knew that there was a school close by. So I asked my mom that, how about if we go to that school and find, get the data on how these girls can be part of that school. So my mom accompanied me, we went to that school and we found out that those girls could be helped only if they would pass the test. So I prepared them for the test as a 13 year old and um, I felt very good though, Gabby, because I felt like I was a teacher and I really, really was fascinated by teachers' personality. You know, when growing up, they are our role models. Even now I think they are true heroes of the community because they established that edifice where the human nature flourishes. So yes, I tutored them and uh, fortunately they cleared the test and that was a life changing game for that family. And the mother was like in tears. She never knew that her daughter would be able to go to school and she would get scholarship. 
So it was an amazing experience. And from that point on, there was no turning back. And then I started teaching children from foster homes. I would go to different places where it was safe for me to go. And then I also tried to teach children who were sitting down on the ground where our apartment building was, and they were always playing on the sand. And I would go to them and I would say that I would teach them reading and all that. So I think that whatever was in my power, I tried to do to see that whatever I am getting as a child, maybe these girls could also get it and they could also go from here and perhaps you know start reading. And I loved to go to school. My mom used to tell me that even when the school was closed, I would get up in the morning and be in my uniform and I would sit by the door because we used to have carriages that would take us to school back in India and Pakistan when I was growing up. Now they have vans, but I would wait for that guy to call me and my mom would say, it's Saturday, there's no school. And I would be so sad that there is no school. So I think that love for learning, I was dying to give it to those girls. And I thought it is such a great thing where people can read and go to places within, you know, just picking up a book. (laughs) Yeah, I also share that love for learning. And I'm really inspired by the fact that as a child, you did all this. Especially, I love the fact that you helped other children in your community. That's really special. Can you please shed some light on media and missing narratives and how this gap has led you to create a research-based broadcasting module? Yeah, Gabby, that is a very interesting question. I think my work around diversity with various nonprofit and corporate environment has helped me, I would say, understand the harsh facts pretty up close and personal. I also think that conversations around diversity in media have tended to focus on cozy and nice lip service. There hasn't been much action. Uh, Diversity is often partnered with the word inclusion in our, uh, you know, racial vocabulary. And if we go back since the conflicts of the 1960s, it has been increasingly apparent that our political, educational, and media institutions should have constituted newsrooms with diverse reporters. But that has not happened. And even now, we don't see much in the newsroom. Yes, we do see that having colored people to kind of fulfill the compliance issue of diversity and inclusion will not satisfy what the public wants. So I think having colored people with power to present the reporting and stories is as essential as the proper camera representation of the minorities. So our media should represent the communities they serve. I would like to share here that I had the good fortune to be on the advisory board of public broadcasting for eight years. And we continued to find ways where we could justify our position in terms of programming and issues of the public on the public media, because that's what the public media is there for. So in the past two decades, if I see my journey with the broadcasting and, you know, journalism and being an activist, I think the trust in the media has plummeted. This is a crisis of democracy. And I think since the press's role 
is like a guardian of democracy and it is founded upon the trust of the public unless and until we we are able to see that that it is reclaimed and that people don't see themselves or their stories depicted in the media they consume as fair representation i think it's not going to be as favorable in terms of how people think about the media i think there is a daunting task ahead to rebuild public trust representing voices of all americans and when we say americans i mean that it is our strength together as all americans because we cannot just talk about black white brown when we say american we are all americans and this is extremely important because that demonstrates the essence of our constitution i also strongly believe that the press has a task to protect american democracy and i think it can only succeed by reflecting the true canvas of our demographic landscape diverse and yet powerfully rich which we call the american people now coming to my broadcasting because i used to see when i came to america i used to see i used to meet people and i used to see that how everything you know around me was challenging for immigrants and it was difficult for them to realize their potential so i started going to events and understand their problems and talk to them you know just having informal conversations and listening to their story i was also confused that many immigrants were facing barriers within their school system communicating and sharing their value systems and to a large extent being part of the school community they didn't feel that they are inclusive in that community so since they were here legally and many fathers had really good jobs and they were professionals and had also owned businesses and yet you can sense from their stories there is a gray and depressed homely environment with a fractured connection between the children and their parents clearly i felt like the dream of a promised land was questioned and here i tried to identify ways where i could be you know of a bridge you know serving them but i needed something which was more not going because i had tried home visits with parents and immigrant families and that was a little challenging because the fathers were present and they didn't like my presence to the extent that they thought that you know culturally i was trying to you know make the women very powerful so they would question their men and all that stuff so i thought i needed a bigger platform and that platform was radio so i started establishing connections with the ethnic media and started doing a bilingual show and that's how i developed and curated a research based module of what my community needs i knew the needs because i started participating on school boards i was part of school boards around in dallas and also in one of the schools in new york and that's how i could see that the problem of immigrants nationally and internationally are pretty much similar because they need validation of their culture they don't want to just merge and give up everything that they own as their cultural values but they want to come out and they want to build a narrative that is based on traditional values and their customs as well as the emerging phenomena of the technology change and cultural values and being in the new homeland 
So I think the radio shows that I, you know, curated and incorporated into the form of a broadcasting module, they were primarily to help women and men coming from different countries develop those cognitive tools and communication skills so they are able to build the bridge between their immediate circle of influence and social agencies that they were part of, such as schools, hospitals, libraries, even their own churches where they would go and meet people who were living here for a long time. So I tried to bridge that by giving them cognitive tools and helping them to be confident and create those learning points in their life where they felt that those were the things that were missing and that helped them create their narrative of life in the new country. Dr. Dayani, what was the moment when you realized there was a lack of representation in the media? I think I realized that when I saw that many communities were not represented in the media. And that's how, you know, as I mentioned that I joined the NPR, the Public Broadcasting Advisory, Community Advisory Board. And they also um, were very receptive in helping me go to different demographics and understand their needs and bring their issues to the table. And that is how we try to change the programming and also bring in their issues and their narratives on what do they want, what do they think, and how do they want to be seen in the American system. So staying on the topic of media, how do you think that the various media platforms which we have today can be used to transform minority communities? I think um, there are many ways where we can use the media to transform communities, such as the programming that I did on a research-based platform. And then I used the data and transformed it into an entertaining talk show. I think young people like you and many more who want to do so much for the communities but are uh, feeling that they do not have a platform. But I think they have plenty of platforms if they want to engage in a dialogue with their own communities and their own minority people. And sometimes, uh, Gabby, it requires a process. And that process needs to have, you know, set boxes of approaches. And that is like, this is my time with this tool to gather data. And I'm going to talk to people taking the mic in different events and talk to them about their issues and concerns and you know, what do they want to see in their community, gathering data with their firsthand stories. Then the next step or the next box needs to be where you step in and you figure out how can I resolve these things? How can I solve their issues? What can I do and what can I bring to the table? Who do I need to contact? And then this is how you kind of develop your own ground and expand eventually by taking the first step. If you start thinking that, oh my God, how can I do that? It becomes a very daunting task cognitively as well to understand. But I think if you start thinking about 
how do I need to get the data? How do I need to communicate to the people? Where do I need to take this data and get the support? What are my resources? How can I seek more help? These are the relevant questions one need to ask if they want to use the media platform to transform communities. Asking the right questions also saves you from resource duplication and also bring and it also brings you closer to the outcome that you are trying to achieve. Thank you for that great advice. Now switching topics a little, with your expertise, Dr. Dayani, how do you go about finding common ground between those who have opposing beliefs? Yes, this is also a very good question because this is a, a kind of a subject matter I teach in Colombia. So having this is like a never ending battle, people with different interests, people with different conflicting opinions, and this will always stay with us as long as we live. So people with differing interests and opinions, I think we have to start thinking from their position of interest rather than position of authority and position of where they come from, gender, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, everything. We need to leave that and we need to understand the other person of what is it that they need, what is of interest to them. And this is how I go about and I search and I feel that, you know, researching prior to meeting people and communicating with them with differing interests and different conflicting opinions, uh, one needs to understand that where they are coming from and what do they want. Once we know that, we are able to share the dialogue in a more civil way. And I think our dialogue kind of matures, it kind of builds, it helps the other person stay with us longer because now we have created that space for them to feel validated and respected of their differing interest. And so to answer your question in one line that I seek to probe, inquire from places of interest than authority. That's such a great approach. Dr. Dayani, what do you think about crucial causes and issues and the relationship between fake news, media literacy, and social media debates with trending tweets? I think this is a very pertinent question. Looking at the media right now and what is happening uh, with different social media, and I think one of the crucial connection is that media literacy and fake news have a strong correlation. And due to lack of media literacy, fake news flourishes. So at the heart of all media literacy, education is the goal of helping children, teens and adults recognize the misleading claims online and in other media. And for that, one must know that there is a difference between fake and fabricated and fact check. And these are the three things they must be able to distinguish. Although often termed as fake news, misinformation can take many forms. Like, you know, I would say that in 2016, I came across like the assistant professor of media studies, Melissa Zinder in North Andover, Massachusetts, talked about how misinformation is kind of taking its space very fast in the digital age. This was very interesting about our article that she says that there are 
websites that put such suspicious information and among them they what they do is that they purposefully fabricate information or distort news now this has become like a organized structured agencies who do that and who are kind of nurturing and building these kind of fake news platform they present opinions as facts and it is very easy to screw them you know it is very easy they rely on disproven conspiracy theories they traffic in unverified claims i would say that they consist of state sponsored propaganda promote racism misogyny and many other negative elements they also use exaggerated or misleading headlines or images as clickbait so there was a research in 2018 that americans tend to label statements they agree with as factual and those they disagree with as opinion and there was also another research in 2019 by ohio state university psychologists they suggest that people do draw a distinction between dishonest and biased sources and the researchers found that even accurate news when reported by a source tends to lose its credibility so these are some interesting things that our young generation and people who have and who are in the positions of power must know how we can get swayed by uh, certain news and facts that are not represented and that are not given to us in its organic form and then we can establish our own opinions but how many people know that because whenever there are news and facts and how news media relay information it is so sensationalized it is so money driven by ads and things like that that these days one just like you know reading writing was one time extremely important to enter school or to you know go ahead in school i think media literacy is as important these days in order for us to be healthy and constructive members of our societies how can one go about finding accurate and true news so we can go about by looking into the source that where is the news coming from and how has that this news reported we need to be very careful on what we see because now even twitter following and all that could be fake there could be elements that one needs to be careful about following does not mean retweets does not mean that this is a true and legit you know piece of fact one needs to know the source and how this has been generated so there are many things that one needs to know in order for us to kind of whether to trust that info piece of information or not and i think the first thing is to dissect that piece of news and see where it's coming from and who is behind this and whether the source is you know absolutely credible yes for sure dr dayani you spent a lot of time fighting for gender equality can you please share about the work you do to fight for gender equality and can you please share the role men play in helping women achieve the same status as men i yeah, i've worked for gender equality for a long time and i think what we are missing is the absence of men from our narrative and 
We need to have them. We do need to work together as women, but we also need to be very careful of our verbiage that we use when we are trying to seek support from men. And unless and until men kind of sit with us at the table and help us, support us in our decision-making, it is going to be extremely difficult to fight for gender equality, whether it be a policy measure, whether it be a corporate position. So it's important for us to show them that we are working with them and not against them. And that is very important because the power dynamics that we share with men show us the imbalance. It shows us you cannot fight and get the power. We must show them that we are allies. We are trying to get this equality because we are fighting, we are supporting family empowerment. When a woman brings more salary to her home, she is also contributing to the family. When a woman is given paid parental leave, she is helping that home, you know, have a better quality of life to be with the children. So all these narratives, all these issues that we think are, you know, pending on the table need to be seen from the lens of family empowerment. It is not I against you. It is about us. It is all about us because we cohabit it with men. We cannot say that this is just for women. It is contributing to all of us. And whether it be pay equity, whether it be gender, parental leave for children, whether it be reproductive rights, uh, we are trying to help our daughters and women in the family bring justice to this issue. And, you know, as it has been said so many times by which, which was kind of coined by Hillary Clinton, that we're talking about human rights issue. Women are humans first, and gender comes later. We see everybody as human beings first. So when we talk about you know, women's rights, then we have also to understand that this is beyond. This is a larger frame where we have to talk about women's rights, LGBT rights, because this is all, it all encompasses as human rights. And without men, I think we will not be able to achieve what we are expecting and hoping to do in a short time. Dr. Dayani, I had never heard about that family approach idea, and it really resonated with me. So thank you for sharing that. And now for our last question. Dr. Dayani, what advice would you give to someone looking to pursue social justice for a specific minority? I think social justice is such a broad term that anybody who feels that there is unfair systems and systematic barriers existing for communities, whether, you know, people of color or even for, like, if I'm going on the street and if I have that spirit and something happens to my fellow white member of the society, I will immediately run for help. I will go and rescue that person, that this is not right that's being done to that person. So when it comes to social justice, it's not only confined to a certain, you know, caste or creed or people of color. It is for everyone. We are in this fight 
together and we want to sustain each other. We want to be protective of each other. So my advice is that change, impact and transformation requires persistence, patience and faith in our purpose and mission. And I think with my journey, a lot of patience and faith was there and persistence, I would say, came from my mom. She was always very patient. She would always say that there's a time for everything and we must not give up. So I'm just going to borrow her narrative on that. And in this kind of work, sometimes it takes months and years and sometimes many, many years to see the outcome. But we must believe that the timeline that we have in our minds could be different, but that does not mean that we need to be disheartened or we need to kind of lose faith in the community and our leadership. I would say that when we are in this field where we are pursuing social justice, giving up is not an option. That last line really hit home and really brought home the entire message of this episode. So thank you. Dr. Dayani, it was a true pleasure to have you as a guest on my podcast. This episode is very personal to me since you are the one who inspired me to create this show. So it means a lot getting to have you here. You're an inspiration for me and have accomplished so much in your life thus far. I cannot wait to see what your future holds. Thank you. Thank you, Gabby, for having me. And I wish you all the best for this podcast and many more adventures that I see in your life that perhaps will take you to faraway places and make the impact that you are trying to achieve. Thank you, Dr. Dayani. And thank you to all of my listeners for tuning into this episode of The Minority Report. Please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at The Minority Report 2020. And lastly, stay tuned for future episodes.